Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 365 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, we're glad to present another instalment of Location and the Writer. Here, Carolyn Sanderson revisits her childhood home for the first time in five decades to compare memory with reality. Paul Dodgson takes us to the south coast of Kent, drawn back to a place he was once desperate to escape, and Claire Chambers explains why the apparently prosaic location of the southeast London suburbs has been such a source of inspiration in her work. First, here's Carolyn Sanderson on her childhood home. It's Sunday morning and I'm four years old. In my memory, I'm walking down the stairs at home onto the parquet floor of the hall. The door to the dining room is ajar and from it, music is streaming. I step forward to meet the rush of sound and stop, entranced. After a moment, I creep to the door and slowly push it further open until I can see my daddy's big blue reel-to-reel tape recorder in the corner of the room, unspooling the piece of music we are both now listening to. I already love watching this machine, especially its spinning reels, and how the tape unwinds from the slow-moving left-hand one and winds up on the right-hand one, which turns much more quickly at first. But today, it is the music that has my full attention. My daddy is sitting at the table, dispatching some weekend paperwork. He looks up, irritated at the interruption, but then smiles when he realises that I too am listening. The music, he tells me, is Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 22 in E-flat. The third movement, the rondo. Always precise, even with a child as young as I am, he also tells me the Kirkel number. K482. I quickly forget the name of it, along with the Kirkham number. But to the day my daddy dies, I remember the rondo. And that music and that parquet floor became the totems of my earliest clear memory. One day, five decades later, and without much forward planning, I drive two hours north to the village where I spent my childhood. When I get there, The crisp and cloudless autumn weather encourages me to walk for miles, retracing the tracks of my early life. I peer through the perimeter fence of my primary school, gawp at the scout hut where I had my first kiss, and hoof round the housing estate where my grandmother lived for a while. There I look at the front garden walls and smile at the suddenly returned memory of walking the long length of Barry Drive to the shops, with my mum as she pushed my brother in his pushchair with one hand and held on to mine with the other, as I stepped up and down onto each low enough wall, trying to stay off ground. When I get to the parade of shops down Cherry Tree Avenue that we used to go to, I sit on a bench and review the wholesale retail changes. A nail bar and a hairdressing and beauty parlour have replaced Hammond's, the newsagent, where I bought sweets and copies of a comic called Bunty. The greengrocers, whose fruity smell I can still conjure in the nostrils of my memory, has also gone, along with a dress shop called Elegance, where my mum bought some of the rare frocks she didn't sew herself. I discover from a poster tacked to a tree 
that a new housing estate is to be built on the nearby fields I roamed as a child. Mostly alone, but sometimes in a gang of the kids from the cul-de-sac beyond, where I lived from the age of six. I feel compelled to stand in those fields again, and find I easily remember the route I used to take. Down the jitty, a Leicestershire word for a narrow passageway, across the brook, and up and out into the fields. It was the quickest way back to my new house from the shops, rather than the longer walk round by Barry Drive. I had long since grown out of walking on walls, but I would often tarry in those fields, watching butterflies, or picking grasses and shaving off the seed heads with my fingers, while I practised blowing bubbles with the Anglo bubbly gum I bought in Hammonds, without my mum, a stern guardian against tooth decay, knowing. Swish swashing through the long grass, I spy a woman walking three small dogs. I greet her and ask if it's true about the new houses. It is, and it's a miracle, albeit a dolorous one, that I have chosen to visit the fields of my childhood just before they disappear forever. Then, as we chat some more, I discover that the woman I have stopped is the mother of my first primary school best friend, Joanne. It is another small miracle. I remember you, she says. You came to one of Joanne's birthday parties in a lovely frock. Someone said, what a nice felt dress. And quick as a flash, you said, it's not felt, it's velvet. I feel a bit ashamed of how snippy a child I must have sounded. But I remember the dress made by mum in midnight blue, high-necked with tight cuffs and pearl buttons sewn onto an inverted triangle design at the throat. The news of Joanne, who works long hours as a carer in Nottingham and has two grown-up sons, leaves me with a lump in my throat. Still marvelling at the coincidence, I send my best to Joanne, say goodbye to her mother and walk on, across the railway tracks and up along the cul-de-sac, and past our second house. And then on a bit further, I reach our house in Forest Rise, the first house I lived in, the place where I first heard Mozart. I take a couple of photos and pace up and down a bit outside. There are two cars in the drive, which surely means someone is in. I hesitate, but then I think of the soon-to-vanish fields and of how quickly change can come. So I walk up the path and ring the bell. An elderly man answers, a concerned look on his face. I explain who I am, and by way of proof hand him a document I've brought with me, my pink infant welfare card, on which my baby weights were recorded. It also has my first ever address on it, the address that is now his. May I please just take a peek into your hall, I ask. The man remains reserved, but acquiesces. Sorry about the mess. My wife's in hospital, he says, motioning for me to step inside. And there it is. The hall. The stairway. The dining room door. All as I remember it. Achingly familiar but smaller and also spooky, as if I've landed in a parallel universe. The hall is now carpeted, but when I mention the parquet, the owner says... Oh yes, it's still there underneath, but we decided it was a bit noisy. He has relaxed a little now and invites me in a bit further to view the garden of which he is clearly proud. The rosebeds I remember are no longer there, but at the end of the garden is a tall apple tree 
covered in bramleys. My mum used to make them into apple pies, I tell him. I am in the house for less than ten minutes, but my short visit has a profound effect on me. The reassurance provided by this confirmation that things were as I remember them is enormous, and on the drive home I feel triumphant and happy. But the next day, I return home from a day of meetings in London, exhausted to my core, and for the next few weeks have spells of weeping. Never go back, they sometimes say, but my visit to the stage of this earliest memory provided the emotional ignition for the book I'm now writing, about loss, about memory, and about my father and the music he loved. My research has taken me to many other locations, to Mozart's childhood homes in Salzburg and also to Paris, London and Helsinki. Experiencing all these places firsthand has enabled me to write more vividly and accurately. But nothing helped unspool my book on the page like that trip to Forest Rise. That was Carolyn Sanderson. Next, here's Paul Dodgson visiting Kent. You close the front door, walk across the driveway and turn left onto the avenue. The first thing that strikes you is the bigness of the sky. Immense, cumulus cloud castles are drifting over Kent. Since you left home, you've lived in cities and are used to narrow streets and skies shared with rooftops, so you're surprised every time you come back. Here, the avenue is wide and there is space between the houses. You're walking away from a modest detached house built in 1959, a time when land was cheaper and gardens were generous. When anyone asks what sort of place you grew up in, you always say, a modern house, even though it's 60 years old. You still think of this as home, but the house was sold in 2019 and another family are living here. But this was where you lived for 53 years. You, mum and dad, then mum and dad, and then just mum. So, it's in your imagination that you take this walk, but it feels as real as it ever did. This is Hythe, a small town on the Kent coast you were once desperate to leave, but have ended up writing about more than anywhere else. It fed you and nurtured you and filled your head with stories. The town doesn't feel as small or as far away from everything else as it did when you were a teenager. Now, you love that time in history when you were young and the whole of Hythe seemed to be peeping out from behind net curtains, full of characters who remembered when the skies were thick with German planes and who were deeply suspicious of the modern world. You turn right onto Castle Road. The houses are older and grander here. You remember how you carried the class structure of England through the houses of this town. Mansions, big detached, detached, semi-detached, terraced and apartment. In those days, there weren't many apartments in Hythe, so if you lived in one, you were eccentric. You're heading towards the town, but if you went the other way, you'd come to Saltwood Castle. The Tory MP, writer and diarist Alan Clark used to live here and you would glimpse him in the distance, tall and mysterious, radiating privilege, as if he belonged to another world. You listen to the soundscape. Seagulls are squabbling and shrieking overhead, 
There is a steam whistle from a train on the Romney Hyde and Dimchurch Railway and the sound of shooting practice on the ranges. Although you're a mile from the sea, you can smell it in the air. Now you pass the allotments. It is high summer and they are lush and green growing. Once, with your friend Ian, you took over a disused shed and turned it into a camp. From here, you would peer through cracks in damp wood and make strange noises to confuse elderly gardeners. Until one day, a red-faced man with rolled-up shirt sleeves surprised you by suddenly opening the door. He threatened to cauliflower your ears if he ever saw you again. You're on top of the hill, looking over the jumble of rooftops, the army ranges, the Romney Marsh and the sea, so you stop to take in the view. The coast makes a sweeping curve all around to the flat peninsula of Dungeness. It is a clear day, so you can see right across the channel to the French coast. At night the waters are full of the blinking lights of marker boys, the navigation lights of passing ships, and sometimes, low on the horizon, the distant lights of Boulogne, the beginning of a whole other continent. It seemed tantalisingly close, It used to feel as though you would only find interesting stories once you got out of here and went there. It turned out this place has given you enough stories to keep you writing through much of your adult life. You walk down Church Hill and stop to admire the tall hollyhocks growing by the churchyard wall. Beyond that, the church stands over the town and is visible from almost everywhere. Once you crewed on a boat sailing around the British coast, and one tack brought you close to Hythe before you turned away again and headed back out to sea. The church on the hill was the last landmark of home and eventually disappeared in mist. It was early evening, and you thought of your parents pouring a drink and eating peanuts in the living room, and wished you could get off and join them. When fame and fortune had an allure, it seemed to you they were not to be found here. With the exception of Alan Clark, no one famous lived or came from Hythe until you discovered Noel Redding, bass player in the Jimi Hendrix experience, had gone to the same school as you. For a moment, it made you feel plugged into the mains. What you didn't know is that when you were very young, a famous novelist lived on Churchill, and because you spoke to everybody... You probably chatted to her in her garden. When you were a Cub Scout, you might have even knocked on her door during Bobber Job Week. Years later, a blue plaque appeared on the wall of a detached cottage on this steeply sloping pedestrian lane, telling that Elizabeth Bowen lived here for the last years of her life, and you look her up. You discover a rich seam of literature, and in one book, The Heat of the Day, mostly set in wartime London, the whole story ends in a place that must be a fictionalised version of Hythe. You will learn that being celebrated is mostly a fleeting thing, for surely she was famous in her day. Now you are in the heart of the town and crossing the high street. Eakins the chemist and Eldridge's the draper are still here, but Griggs the fishmonger and Crundon's the greengrocer have long gone. It's mainly cafes and charity shops now. You look down the high street, past the town hall with the clock that overhangs the road, to where the record shop used to be. 
You remember being 13 and trying to ingratiate yourself with the owners by saying you wanted to start a soul collection. You held up a single by the Righteous Brothers that was on sale for 10p. You can't go wrong with the Righteous Brothers, said the owner. Great, I'll have it then, you say. Only when you get outside do you realise it had been a play on words and not an actual recommendation. You still feel the embarrassment. Now you are walking towards the canal and past the war memorial and remember the parades as a cub scout on Remembrance Day. Veterans from the First World War would turn out every year and you recall looking into the eyes of an old man and seeing tears running down his face as the bugle sounded. The first time you'd ever seen an adult cry. Finally, you arrive on the shingle beach and walk to the water's edge. The sun is setting over the peninsula. The sea ahead is full of ships heading up and down the channel. And to the left, a ferry from Calais is making for Dover. The sound of waves on shingle brings to mind the words of Matthew Arnold in his poem, Dover Beach. Listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease, and then again begin. There is a red flag flying to my right, which means the way along the coast is forbidden as the ranges are in use. You hear the putter of rifles over the shrieking of gulls. It is calm tonight, which means that somewhere out at sea there will be small boats headed for this coast, full of people as desperate to be here as I was once desperate to leave. That was Paul Dodgson. Next, here's Claire Chambers on Suburban London. Children always experience their own life as normal, and I was therefore quite an age before I realised that growing up in Croydon, fictionalised by P.G. Woodhouse as Mitching Hill, a foul hole, was a handicap which would need regular apology in later years. My brother and sister, some years older than me, expressed their contempt for their hometown by escaping to Australia and Switzerland as early as possible, never to return. Perhaps, like so many, my siblings saw the suburbs as stifling hotbeds of conservatism and lower middle-class complacency, a place of pooterish bank clerks and privet hedges, lace curtains and laundrettes, elegantly described by writer and broadcaster Godfrey Wynne as the cemetery of all youthful drama, the burying ground of all ambition. To stay was to risk turning into the bride of Manfred Mann's semi-detached suburban Mr James and settle for an existence of washing lines and walking the doggy. Indeed, this is more or less the default position of poets, musicians and especially fiction writers. From Hanif Qureshi to Julian Barnes, Novelists have helped to define our view of suburbia as somewhere that enlightened artistic souls need to rebel against or escape from to the more exciting city. I have never forgotten Barnes' description of the dispiriting sounds of a Sunday afternoon in Metroland, as experienced by his hero Christopher, teenage scourge of the bourgeoisie. The patterned roar of motor mowers, the quiet chomp of shears, the squeak of chamois on boot and bonnet... Barbara Pym, that chronicler of the micro-disappointments and humiliations of suburban spinsterhood, describes well her character's sense of shame at living on the margins. 
Yes, I live miles away beyond Hammersmith, explains Dulcie from No Fond Return of Love, making a joke of it as suburban dwellers sometimes must. And when Dulcie suggests inviting a young man back for drinks on his way home, her fashionable city-dwelling colleague retorts, On his way home? But this could hardly be on anyone's way home. This nowhere land, which demographic targeters, whose job it is to sum up the character of a few streets with a pithy label, call pebble-subtopia, is not just a geographical location then, but a state of mind. Not only is it nowhere, it's not on its way to anywhere either. Red Hill exhausts and tires, warns a shop in Sheena McKay's Red Hill Rococo. Well, quite. But I've never felt quite the same sense of alienation from the suburbs. As a child, I enjoyed playing hopscotch and roller skating with my friends in the street, except on Sundays, of course. We weren't churchgoers, but playing outside on Sundays was regarded as common and therefore forbidden. My walk to school with my mother took in the smarter houses in the south of the borough, with their grass verges and pristine front gardens, which we rated with huge condescension out of ten. Most of them came in at eight or nine. For scale, our own front garden was only awarded a four. I spent my teenage years happily haunting the shopping precinct with my best friend, smelling the joss in the covered market, trying on the makeup testers in Miss Selfridge, and making a cola float in our favourite calf last two hours until we were thrown out for loitering. I never experienced it as somewhere that was crushing my spirit or holding me back. In fact, apart from a brief interlude at university and a year in New Zealand, I've lived in the same triangular patch of south-east London, bounded by Croydon in the west, Norwood in the north and Bromley in the east, for over 50 years, and these surroundings have been the setting for much of my fiction. As well as being my home, there is something very fruitful to me in this liminal space between the city and the countryside, neither quite one thing nor the other, not glamorous or edgy or even seedy like London, and without the majestic landscape or pastoral calm that is celebrated for inspiring poets and writers to take up their pens and contemplate the sublime. Virginia Woolf gives short shrift to the sort of trivial external detail and particularity used by novelists to provide context to, or in her view to obscure, the interior life of a character. She has great fun in her essay, Mr Bennett and Mrs Brown, mocking Arnold Bennett's novel, Hilda Lessways, in which the titular Hilda is approached via a discussion of the freehold arrangements, architecture and rent of her villa, followed by an exhaustive description of the view from her window. Where is Hilda? Wolf wonders. Alas, Hilda is still looking out of the window. But it is precisely this fidelity to the specific details of the environment which makes the suburban setting such rich terrain for the writer. Aluminium greenhouses, striped lawns, clumps of perfectly spaced marigolds in the border. These are to me what daffodils were to Wordsworth. What could be more poignant than the sight of a plastic supermarket carrier bag tugging at the branches of a winter tree? A man-made leaf that will never die. What symbolises better the distance between the haves and have-nots? the well-behaved and the misbehaviors, than the sight of a fly-tipped mattress and assorted trash at the end of a street of perfectly manicured gardens. The very concept of the semi-detached house, an arrangement unique to the UK as far as I'm aware, 
is such a splendidly British compromise, allowing some privacy, some eavesdropping. Nosiness is, of course, the special province of the suburban dweller. Barbara Pym makes use of this often in her fiction to brilliant effect. What was the point of living in a suburb if one could not show a healthy curiosity about one's neighbours, wonders Mabel in Less Than Angels. Spying from behind net curtains is regarded as one of the compensations for the disadvantages of living so far from the bright lights of the city, and many of Pym's characters are inveterate people-watchers. Senor McBride Pereira, a retired diplomat in No Fond Return of Love, sits at the window of his top-floor flat, eating sugared almonds and speculating on the goings-on in the street below. This, surely, is the alter ego of the novelist, of all novelists, hungrily watching and conjuring stories from the fragments observed. For the vigilant, clues to the hidden lives of others are everywhere. I find I often use milk bottles as signposts in my novels. In a dry spell, failure to clear away the remains of broken glass on the doorstep is interpreted by those inclined to judge as a sign of slatternly standards. In small pleasures, milk left out all day is a break in routine that alerts the neighbours that our heroine is spending her nights elsewhere. In back trouble, it is the increase in the number of pints in the daily delivery that gives rise to suspicion that a member of the household is pregnant. In my most recent novel, Small Pleasures, I transplanted a true story of a sensational tabloid scoop from the 1950s about a woman who claimed to have experienced a virgin birth to the suburbs of Bromley. The story I wanted to tell was not about a successful Fleet Street journalist, but about someone living a quiet life of frustrated potential. This was not about glamorous Londoners, but about the unfashionable, the overlooked, the over the hill. Of course it had to be a local paper, concerned with parochial matters, a meeting of the Crofton North Liberals, the theft of petrol coupons from the British Legion household hints still redolent of wartime austerity. It was while researching the area on my doorstep to see if it would do as a location that I came across a reference to the Lewisham rail crash of 1957. I had been a regular commuter on the Charing Cross to Hayes Line for years without ever having heard of this significant tragedy which killed 90 people and injured many more. This became the frame of the story, the sombre cloud which hangs over the characters from the beginning. The suburban setting lends itself so well both to the comedy of punctured human self-importance and to the depiction of loneliness and melancholy. The trickle of commuters trudging up the road from the station in the fog, the damp autumn leaves blowing into the front gardens, a lost glove impaled on park railings, a front garden guarded by a pair of tame hydrangeas. It occurred to me to wonder when translation rights were sold in places as far afield as Russia and Estonia, what those readers would make of 1950s Bromley. Perhaps without our cultural prejudice and snobbery about the suburbs, they, like me, will find something there to admire. That was Claire Chambers. You can find out more about Carolyn Sanderson, Paul Dodgson and Claire Chambers on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 365, which was recorded and produced by Yasser Amir. Coming up in episode 366, Bethan Roberts speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about storytelling, abandoning literary theory, 
and Elvis. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.